Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 669 of the Juicebox Podcast. On today's show, we're going to be speaking with David Panzera. David is the parent of three children, two of whom have type 1 diabetes. He is also a trustee of the Leona M. and Harry B. Helmsley Charitable Trust. The trust does a lot for type 1 diabetes that you don't know about. And that's why I asked David to come on the show. It's a very interesting story and a really great conversation that I think you're going to enjoy. While you're listening, please remember that nothing you hear on the Juice Box podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. Are you a U.S. citizen who has type 1 diabetes or is the caregiver of someone with type 1? Please go to t1dexchange.org forward slash juice box. Join the registry, fill out the survey, takes fewer than 10 minutes, and you're going to help people with type 1 diabetes. There's actually an example of how that is in this episode. t1dexchange.org forward slash juice box. This episode of the Juice Box Podcast is sponsored by the Contour Next One Blood Glucose Meter. Learn more about my favorite blood glucose meter at contournext.com forward slash juice box. The podcast is also sponsored by US Med. Get your free benefits check at usmed.com forward slash juice box or by calling 888 721 1514. Wouldn't you like for your diabetes supplies to arrive the way they're supposed to without all that hassle? Check out US Med. My name is David Panzura. You want more details on yeah, me or what you I, want to just ask away? Uh, let's just keep going, David. Uh, let's start with this. You have a child or children with type 1 diabetes. Is that right? Yeah, I have um, three children. Um, two of my three children have type 1 diabetes. So my oldest daughter, Morgan, was diagnosed in 2007. Mm -hmm. She was six years old. She's now 21, doing the math real fast. I have an 18-year-old daughter, Caroline, who was diagnosed four years ago. Um, she's a senior in high school, getting ready to go play D1 lacrosse up at Colgate next year. And knock wood, I have a son who is 15 who does not have diabetes. Okay. Yes. We'll knock on a lot of wood for you. So yeah, exactly. uh, Ka Carolyn was the second. Is that right? Caroline. Caroline. Yeah. Okay. And she's 18 now? She is. She's a senior in high school. Diagnosed when she was 14. Yep. Okay. Eighth and, grade. And you have, do you have any autoimmune issues at all? Well, autoimmune issues, yes. I mean, it's in my alopecia in my family. There's a few other issues, but no no T1D history at all. Okay. As far, as far back as we can go. Celiac, thyroid? Nope. Nothing like that. I mean, Morgan has thyroid issues as well. Okay. Um, but she's T1D. Do you mind ask, is are her thyroid issues autoimmune? Does she have Hashimoto's or is it? No, she hypo hypothyroidism related to diabetes. Okay. All right. So we'll start. How about your wife's side of the family or their mother? I'm sorry. Yeah, zero diabetes, and I am married. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's always like, I never know. I'm always, no, I know. You I, never I, know. Yeah. Uh, okay. Three kids, and your youngest son doesn't seem to have any issues at the moment. 
Okay, so, so he's got issues, just not autoimmune. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that I believe. Um, <laughs> so when Morgan's diagnosed, um, tell me a little bit about it. How did it present, and how did you guys figure it out? Yeah, so my wife Karen is a registered dietitian and has her master's in nutrition. She's also a personal trainer. Um, so she noticed that Morgan was drinking and peeing frequently mm -hmm. and basically said to the doctor, you know what? She dropped off a urine sample. She said, appease me and just test us. Um, so she dropped off a urine sample. We got a phone call the next day and uh, I'll never forget it. Cause I got conference into that call and the doctor said, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but your daughter has type one diabetes and plan to spend tomorrow down at the Columbia diabetes center plan to spend the day there. Mm -hmm. Um, and I can honestly tell you, I knew absolutely zero about type one other than, you know, the stereotypes that sugar or something to do with sugar. I knew nothing. Right. Um, so we went and spent the next day, which was a Friday down at Columbia and learned how to prick fingers and draw up insulin and do shots. And, um, I guess the double-edged sword of not being in DKA is we were sent home that night. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we knew nothing. We knew nothing other than, you know, what the doctor told us. So yeah. we were sent home and the doctor was like, test these four times, prick her finger these four times. And here's the ratios and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, there we were sent home on a Friday night. And, uh, you know, it was terrifying. F 15 years ago, you just had a, they gave you what, a meter and some syringes? Correct. No yeah. CGM. There right. was zero CGM at that point. And was she honeymooning at that point or was she in, in like hard need of insulin? Did you just Yeah, she she had an insulin requirement, but she definitely went in the honeymoon once we started giving her insulin. Okay. I, I always say the honeymoon is God's way of letting the parents freaking get up off the floor so that they could deal with this. <laughs> it gives you it gives you a half a second to get your mind around it before and then exactly. you know and then there's a moment where if it lasts too long, you start thinking, could you just let's just get to the part where everything stabilizes and and the needs are consistent and yeah that happens at about 21 years old i'm finding <laughs> <laughs> i think you're talking about a different stabilization but okay <laughs> so um was uh either of you work out of the home like how did you initially start to manage because she was six right so yeah so my wife was working out of the home um and Thankfully, the school nurse, Morgan was in kindergarten. The school nurse had another child in the school with type 1 diabetes. Mm -hmm. So we joked about it now, but you know, back then, Morgan was safer going to school than staying home with either one of us because the nurse actually knew what to do. Yeah. Um, you know, I read a lot. We learned a lot real quick um, and began to understand how to begin to deal with this disease. And, you know, quite frankly, also began to see the ineptitudes of our healthcare system. Right. And what I mean by that is, you know, I, I said a little bit before when, when we were sent home, we were said, Oh, the doctor said, test these four times a day. After I went home and did a little, little more diligence, when we went back the following week, I was like, why didn't you tell me that if I tested six or eight or 10 times a day, I'd have more information and be better equipped to deal with this disease. And the doctor looked at me and said, well, you know what? We don't like to overwhelm people, parents of newly diagnosed. And I said, buddy, that you, you got that wrong. That's not your job. Yeah. Your job is to educate and inform us and let us decide what we can and can't handle. Right. But you prejudged us and you prescribed four times a day, which I think anybody who would tell you is you cannot get really good control of diabetes 
with four snapshots in time per day. Sure enough. It's borderline impossible. I, I, I agree completely. I think the information needs to be given to people and then it's up to them to do what they can do with it to, um, you know, to, to direct people based on least common denominator or your, your desire not to overwhelm a few people. You steal a lot of information from a lot of people and you, and you can never be certain of what people can and can't understand. And this, the timing on this is crazy, but I just got this sent to me 15 minutes ago. It's a little drawing that I can't show you. It's a robot that this little boy drew. Uh, he's the robot. And on his shoulder, he has a juice box and some things that are trying to talk in his ear. <laughs> um, and I'm the juice box in his photo, like in his drawing. And the and he's, the things are telling him that he can eat whatever he wants. And I'm telling him as long as he boluses for it. And he's a, a small child who picked this up while his mom was listening to the podcast. Like she never really? played, she never played it for him or told him sit and listen to this and she sent me this lovely note to to discuss you know what what the kids picking up just from hearing the podcast off to the side. So I'm a huge firm believer you give people information and they they have autonomy. They can do people people will surprise you. You know, I think if you treat them as if you're um, expecting them to fail, well, then, I mean, obviously they're going to. They don't even know the basics at that point. So where did you but, get that information from 15 years ago? Because the internet was not ripe with diabetes information back then. So one was the internet. Two was this other family that was in my daughter's school had had a child. Their daughter had type 1 since she was 18 months old. Mm -hmm. So they were both six years old. And this family obviously knew a lot more about diabetes than I did. But what you're describing with the healthcare system is really, um, you know, I, I don't want to bail out the doctor here because I think he's culpable, but it's also a system that prevents the doctor from spending the proper amount of time with me and my family to understand what we can and can't handle. Mm -hmm. And then they triage us, as you say, to the lowest common denominator. And ultimately that equals mediocre to crappy care. Yeah, no, I, uh, so I use a phrase on the podcast a lot. I tell people that they're getting do not die advice instead of live healthy advice. Um, and and more more ironically, again, because I did not know how our conversation was going to go. I already recorded this morning with the mother of a 17-year-old girl. Everybody's 17 right now, apparently. Um, uh, the mother of a 17-year-old girl who was on the show like a year and a half ago. She was on with two of her friends. They met at school. They all have type one. They weren't similarly aged, but they weren't too far off. If I'm remembering back when I recorded, they were like 16 and 15 and 13. These girls that all met each other because they had type one and they listened to this podcast. And so the mom comes on later, you know, to kind of fill in the other side of the story. And I was recording with her today. Her daughter was diagnosed in Ecuador. They put her on sliding scale told her that Ugh. this is it. Let her live for five years, this little girl, with a nine, an A1C in the nines. And you know how the mom gets out of it eventually? She finds another family from a, this family from America who taught her different ideas. She was incredibly excited because this was, her common sense was telling her all along this was wrong, but she couldn't break free. And then when she finally even went online to find out and went back to the doctor, the doctor told her, that's how they do it in America. This is how we do it in Ecuador, which obviously is, you know, it's bull. Ass backwards. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And, and so she finally gets good information from another person. She's on her way. That kid's walking around with a 5.5 five to a 6A1C now, years later. 
right? But the irony is how many kids have the ability of have an adult that can advocate for them and then have the wherewithal to go and pick up and move, get to a, you know, get to somewhere where there's care. Right. And then you think about places like sub-Saharan Africa and we do a lot of work there. Those people are screwed before they ever get out of bed. Right. No, no, and, it's, you know, it's, it's terrible. And and you don't have to go as far as, as another country to find it either, because I talk to plenty of people who are, they, they get, you know, some people try to attribute it to the age they're diagnosed at, but I don't think that's it. I think that you need a, a somebody that's willing to stay in the fight with you for a long time until you can, you can fight that fight on your own. Um, and I think one of the, one of the things that I really believe is that a child would, would benefit from someone being helpful with their health well into their early to mid twenties, you know, like, uh, just someone who can be a reminder or a sounding board or just, you know, just, just a, a friendly, a friendly hug or a pat on the back sometimes to let you know you're doing okay. I, I don't get it. I've interviewed too many people who, got all through college with, with A1Cs and, and fluctuating blood sugars that are clearly not healthy for them. And it isn't until they find a, a life-altering reason to do better yep. for themselves that they actually do because it's so, I mean, life's so repetitive. Day by day, you start into something and wherever you start is sometimes where you stay. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, look, the, the data from the T1D exchange shows that um, people – hit a realization around 25 or 26, which kind of makes sense with what you're saying, mm -hmm. come out of college, begin to think about, Hey, maybe I want to start a family and think about your mortality and then say, Oh, shit, I better start taking care of myself. It is. Um, yeah. I I'm sorry to cut you off, but I almost always see it connected to the, the love for another person, a child, yep. a spouse, the desire to make a family, something like that usually makes people think, Ooh, I have to, I have to do better for myself. Um, which is an incredibly human thing to not want to do well for yourself, but to want to do well for yourself for someone else is, is, is fairly common. It's just not usually this emergent, you know, because. Right. Because well, Scott, the other problem is you have to have access to the information, right? So you live it, unfortunately, even in our country, as you know, I'm sure geography absolutely dictates your outcome. Mm -hmm. And if you look at even things like CGM, well over 90% of prescriptions for CGM come out of the diabetes specialty clinics, which means if you live in rural America where there's no diabetes specialty clinic, you're not getting it. Right. And I think you and I could both agree, and anybody with half a brain dealing with type 1 would tell you that the most important tool to manage your diabetes is CGM, mm. period, full stop. Yeah. And yet the large majority of people living with type 1 are adults who don't see an endocrinologist and live in middle America, and they're not getting access to these tools. Yeah. And, you know, that's extremely problematic. And to me, the CGM is what really gives you the, if you're educated properly and then you're engaged, the CGM can empower you to go do the next step and take mm -hmm. care of yourself. Oh, for um, sure. But I think you need to do all three. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the podcast is, it's worldwide. It's listened to everywhere. Um, and what I've, what I've noticed is that I used to hear people say that you don't share your successes because they make other people feel badly, but I don't believe in that. I, I think that you can lead by example. You can give people different perspectives, uh, create hope for them and, and give them something to reach for. Um, I've seen people 
get CGMs that didn't know they existed. I've seen people yep. adjust their finances to get them change jobs to get better insurance and then come back to me six months, a year later to show me how much better everything is going. Again, it's just, I mean, access, obviously there are some people who are, they can change anything they want about their life. They're not going to come up with the money to buy a, a medical device like this, but it needs to be available to everybody. They need to have at least the hope that they can figure this thing out. And it's not difficult. I, I hate to say it that way, but I mean, I've set up a thing here where pretty much anybody can listen to it and come out on the other side with an A1C at least in the sixes. And if you really understand the podcast, you get into the fives. And I'm talking about no diet restrictions, just understanding how to use insulin. Um, yep. You know, it it just it's inconscionable that that we have people who don't have access to any of the things that they need for health. Um all right. Well, listen, yeah. we, we're completely agreeing on this. Um, yes, we are. <laughs> I, uh, I I asked you to come on because I think that, I mean, I've been writing, let's see, I started writing my blog in 2007. My daughter was diagnosed in 2006. Uh, the blog was incredibly successful for a very long time. And then in 2015, I started this podcast. The podcast eclipsed the blog and in, in hardly any time. It's, it's a better medium for talking about things like this. Um, and all this time I'm aware of the Helmsley foundation, but I don't believe generally speaking that people who have diabetes know what's going on. So I'm trying to figure out how they get involved. I'm obviously well on the outside, but I always see them. They're supporting this. They're supporting that. They're sending money here, that kind of thing. Always diabetes related. Um, but prior to it just beginning to happen, it, it, they didn't do that. And one day it hit me like somebody must have started working there or somebody got diabetes. Or Are you the connection to that? Let's first talk about U.S. Med. You very likely get a lot of diabetes supplies. If you use U.S. Med, those supplies can come to you automatically without hassle. U.S. Med wants you to get better service and better care than you're accustomed to getting now, and they think they can do that for you. They have an a rating with the Better Business Bureau. They accept Medicare nationwide and over 800 private insurers. U.S. Med always provides 90 days worth of supplies and fast, free shipping. They carry everything from your insulin pumps and diabetes testing supplies to the latest CGMs, like Libre 2, and Dexcom G6. US Med will give you a free benefits check right now if you call or go online. Online, usmed.com forward slash juice box is where you want to go. But if you like, and you prefer to speak with someone on the phone, 888-721-1514. You deserve white glove treatment, and US Med wants to give it to you. Speaking of your diabetes supplies, the Contour Next One blood glucose meter is my absolute favorite. In all of the years and for all of the time that my daughter has been using a blood glucose meter, the Contour Next One is my absolute favorite. It isn't just easy to hold and use. It's easy to transport, whether that means in your pocket or your diabetes bag or your purse. The test strips, they offer second chance testing which just means if you should touch the strip to blood, but not complete, like don't get it in there yet. You know what I mean? What happens sometimes? And you come away, you can go back to the blood and get what you need 
without ruining the strip or the quality of the test. And speaking of the quality of the test, the Contour Next One blood glucose meter is super accurate. It is the most accurate meter I've ever used. It's an actual pleasure to deal with. I just used it last night in the middle of the night in the dark. My old eyes could see the screen, no problem. I could see the blood drop, no problem. How? With the bright light that's on the Contour Next One blood glucose meter. This meter absolutely rocks. You can go to contournext.com forward slash juicebox to learn more. And actually, when you're there, you could just buy it. Let me say this. Contour, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to type it in. Contournext.com forward slash juicebox. I can't see the keyboard. My typing skills are not enough that I can I have to look down a little bit. I'm embarrassed, but what are you going to do? And the microphone's right in my face. Anyway, this is more than you need to know. When you get there, you can learn all about the Contour Next One blood glucose meter. It's actually a terrific site. It has a ton of information on it. But one of the things the site has is off to the right side, there's a kind of an orange yellow like flag that says buy online. You can click there right now and choose any number of online retailers. As an example, Amazon. If I click on it, it takes you right to Amazon. You can buy whatever you want. The price is lovely. You're going to see. My goodness, is that how much it costs? Get out of here. That's insane. I've paid more than that for a cheeseburger. That's crazy. All right, contournext.com forward slash juice box. There are links to these sponsors and all of the sponsors in the show notes of your podcast player and at juiceboxpodcast.com. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting the show. Are you the connection to that? I am. So um, long story short, my grandmother was Leona, Leona Helmsley. Okay. So what happened was um, five months after Morgan was diagnosed in 2007, she passed away and named me as one of five um, trustees of what's now an $8 billion trust. Oh, so okay. I knew absolutely nothing about you know how to get a device or anything into market. I knew nothing about nonprofit. All I knew was I had a little girl with type one diabetes who was, you know, now struggling with finger pricks and she only struggled for a few weeks. She, she kind of, and I, I could tell you that story, but um, to answer your question, I am the impetus. What happened was we were basically a $2 billion foundation overnight. And if you know anything about private foundations, we have to give away 5% of our money per annum to, to maintain your nonprofit status. Okay. So, between the five trustees, we had a collective experience of phil philanthropic giving of zero. Um, so here we were trying to get out of the gate. We hired a consultant who was obviously a specialist in nonprofit. And we all kind of picked something that was relevant to us that, to get us off the ground. Because contrary to what was in all the newspapers, uh, my grandmother did not set up her money to go to dogs. Um, so obviously given that my daughter was diagnosed five months earlier, I was like, you know, this is, this is my calling. This is for me. Um, I had no idea how to do it, but I quit my career in 2008 and did, started doing this full time in 2008. So incredibly, David, your story and mine are exactly the same, except 
I started writing a blog to help people with diabetes. Had I had an endowment, I might have done something different. But um, <laughs> but but literally, I'm going to ask you, did you have that feeling inside that I need to help, but I don't know how to help? Let me find other people who know how and I'll support it. Yeah, so I the answer is I, I came to that later. I, I'm, I made a very, very simple promise to my daughter who was you know six at the time. And I said to her, listen, I'll help you in any way that I can. And, you know, my wife will tell you, if you, if, if you want to get my attention, you got to slap me upside the head. Like I don't take a subtle hint. And these two events happening five months apart was a pretty good slap upside the head. Um, I didn't really understand the enormity of my position. I didn't understand how big an opportunity that I had because I was naive. I knew nothing about the space. Mm -hmm. So yes, I did seek out, um, somebody to help. I wrote a letter to Lee Iacocca and I know that you're old enough to know who he is. Some of the kids you talk to have no idea who Lee Iacocca is. Um, that letter landed on the desk of this guy, Dana Ball. Dana was running the Iacocca foundation at the time. Lee Iacocca's first wife had died of complications from type one. Long story short, Dana became employee number two at the Helmsley trust. And I did not poach him from Lee Iacocca. He had left, um, but he came to help me um, build a program. And he had spent seven years in the space prior to coming to work with me. And, you know, we kind of had a pretty good, Dana was a visionary and I was kind of this line them up and knock them down kind of guy. And, you know, we created a program that I think is uh, fairly robust. It's obviously um, evolved over the, 16 or so years or 15 years that I've been at this. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I sought help right away. Wow. I started traveling and learning. Okay. So you kind of immersed yourself in two different worlds. You have to find out, you have to start learning about diabetes and what the needs are. And you have to understand how to, how to work in this charitable organization that you were not part of prior to that. Correct. Yeah. And really understanding the, you know, how to, how ultimately I knew that a business approach had to be brought to this. And that's what I pride myself on because I was like, the end of the day, we want to deliver a drug, a device, a therapy, something to market. Mm -hmm. So I brought that approach. Um, and I, I went out and learned, I spent 18 months living out of a suitcase traveling and learning before we ever wrote our first grant. That's amazing. It really is. And, and in fairness, your daughter is not diagnosed with type one. The trust would have went off and done other things. It wouldn't have had any connection to this at all. It's just correct. that. Do you think that that brings any comfort to your children at all? You know, um, I think it probably does, but they also know, um, you know, it's funny because my daughter would ask me sometimes, you know, dad, I get these questionnaires that ask, what, what, what do you, what do your parents do for a living? She's like, I don't even know what to put for what you do. I just know you do something in diabetes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I used to laugh at that. And, and you know, I, I don't know, you know, I, I kind of, I think you, you could certainly ask them, but I do think that there's comfort in there. But I also think that they have come to understand the same way I have, that my obligation is not just to my children, but to everybody living with this disease. And I've been given a, a huge platform um, and, you know, I've got to dig in and do it. Yeah. 110%. It's kind of the only way I'm wired. I understand. Um, so I, I feel a pretty strong sense of obligation to everybody living with this disease, um, not just my kids. You know, thankfully, my kids are empowered and they do their own thing. And I kind of alluded to this before. 
after three weeks of when Morgan was um, first diagnosed, after three weeks, she had we had a three month a three year old and a three month old at home when Morgan was first diagnosed, and I'll never forget this because in the middle of the night, Morgan's blood sugars were like I don't know four hundred or something, and I she had shared a, a room with her sister Caroline, and I brought her into the bathroom. She was kicking and screaming and crying. I don't want a shot. I don't want a shot, and. I said, listen, I either have to give you a shot or I have to bring you to the hospital, but you need insulin. And she kind of listened to that and then looked me dead in the eye and she said, give it to me. Hmm. And I said, what? And she said, give it to me. I'm doing it. And, you know, it took her 45 minutes, but this six-year-old kid gave herself a shot in the stomach. And I always kind of joke around a little in that all of the Panzeras were all control freaks. And I think that was Morgan taking back a little bit of control. But from that point on, she did her own shots. Um, She kind of picked my wife and I up off the floor and put us on her back and said, all right, you know, we're going to go do this. That's incredible. And yeah, pretty, pretty strong kid. And Caroline, you know, 10 years later was diagnosed at 14 and she had the benefit of having a CGM, right? So she went she was in trial net for seven years. Um, so we knew she had the antibodies. And, you know, when she turned like 14, she was like, Dad, I'm done with trial net. I'm not doing it anymore. I said, fine. Mm-hmm. You know, can't force her. It used to be, she used to get the 50 bucks for trial net. And that was a good enticement for her. She's <laughs> like, that's not enough anymore. <laughs> um, long story short, I said, you don't have to do it. I said, we just got to throw a CGM on you like every few months. I got to make sure. And she's like, fine. So, of course, we put a CGM on her that summer, and you start seeing 220. And I'm like, oh, Christ. There it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we started her on insulin right away. And um, she enjoyed a, about a three-and-a-half-year honeymoon. Um, but we caught her very early. And, you know, knock wood, both girls are doing well. Yeah. Did she – did you always expect that she would – something from trial not happen, right? She had markers? Okay. Correct. Yeah. She had four out of four markers. Oh, okay. Um, so her chances were basically 99% within 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Because uh, TrialNet's been an on-again, off-again sponsor. They're not right now, but I'm a big supporter of them. Yeah. So I think it's it's kind of this double-edged sword, right? Because I would argue a child like Caroline, who had all four markers, she had type 1 at that point. Mm-hmm. She just wasn't symptomatic. Right. If that were cancer, you would go and treat immediately. Mm-hmm. The fact is we have nothing to treat with. So I think in order to begin to develop things to intervene with earlier, you have to have things like trial on that to, to do the screenings of these first degree relatives. But in my mind, I am a thousand percent convinced that at that time, Caroline had type one diabetes. Okay. She just had no symptoms. Was it valuable for her to have that information and for your family as well? Because that's the the argument I always hear from people. They're like, well, I want to just live like it's never going to happen. If it happens, I know what it looks like. I'll I'll, I'll see it coming versus, you know, what happens when you find out early and you're able to manage. Like, I mean, you said for like three, three and a half years, right? Yeah. So I'll give you the I'll give you the kind of both sides of that equation. So we did not tell Caroline um, she you know, my son Luke was screened too. And she, Caroline would always say, well, dad, why do I have to go do trial on that? Luke doesn't. Mm-hmm. And I would say, well, you're at higher risk to get type one. And she would always ask me, she was such an inquisitive kid. She would always say, well, do you think I'm going to get it? 
And I would always answer the same way because I didn't want to lie to her, but I'd say, I hope not. Um, but I knew what the statistics were, but I thought there was zero upside to kind of saddling a child with that kind of burden, mm-hmm. you know, and I wasn't going to do it. I mean, my wife and I already had that burden and and we were, I don't want to say we were fine with it, but obviously um, that put us on high alert. Yeah. So we did catch Caroline early. We did intervene with insulin right away. Um, and I would say, in my opinion, that's why she had such a long honeymoon. To this day, Caroline is probably on half of the amount of insulin that somebody her size normally would be. Hmm. And it could be she's an exercise fanatic. She eats really well. So it could be all of those things. Sure. But she's still on about 20, 25 units a day total. Okay. Um, for about a hundred thirty-five pound kid. Wow, that's um, crazy. Which is yeah. Um, but she'll see. You know, you take her off insulin, and you see crazy excursions as well. Sure, sure. No, of course. Okay. Um. Yeah. Just you know, I I I mean, listen, we did it. My, we did it for my son. He at the time didn't have any markers. We did not keep up with it afterwards because he didn't have any. Um. Yep. But then you know, geez, ten years later, he uh. He, he he got Hashimoto's, which was really hit him very hard uh, because we couldn't. His symptoms were not classic, so mm-hmm. he got uh, hives from his from his waist to his like his neck, and that and that was it. If his body heated up, he broke out in these painful hives. So of course, it got treated as like a topical problem at first, and it took my wife and I sitting down and reading NIH articles. Until one day, the word hives popped up in front of us associated to Hashimoto's because he had the other, he had other symptoms of Hashimoto's, but they they kept telling like we we did maybe six months prior have his blood test and like no it's fine and and we were like okay okay it's not that then you know you then you put it out of your head and then something comes up and you think oh no we've addressed that possibility already and anyway it it took six weeks to figure out that's what he had another five six weeks for the medication to start working you know in that time. Uh, they they treated him with steroids and a number of other things when they thought it was more like an antihistamine problem. Um, and it was hard on him. He's a college athlete. He gained weight from the steroids. He couldn't work out yep. because he'd break out and, and he pulled himself back together quickly. But it was uh, it was scary. And during that entire time, I thought, wow, this was the moment, huh? His body got taxed somehow. His immune system went the wrong way. This could have been diabetes. Like that's what I sat there thinking. Like he got he got Hashimoto's, but this could have been type one. How about that? And um, it's just scary. It's never going to not be scary. I mean, you're probably going to wonder about your son until the day you go. Yeah, I mean, there are times where you know he gets cranky or irritable, and I'm like, go prick your finger. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Before like, I get up- leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> Before I get upset, let's make sure your blood sugar's not high. Um, exactly. Yeah, no, that's really something. So the girls are older. I'm assuming they manage themselves pretty much. Or are you and your wife involved? So we're involved peripherally. Um, Morgan is a junior at college, mm-hmm. um, so she. She very much um, likes the fact that we're on Dexcom share with her and that I'm I'm kind of an insomniac. I don't sleep very well, so I'm definitely on the night shift. Um, and I think that brings her comfort. I will say when we first got share, um, we had to have Morgan call me after two weeks of being on. And she's like, Dad, we got to talk. I'm like, what's the matter? She's like, you're driving me nuts. Um, so we came up with kind of rules of engagement as to when I'm allowed to reach out to her and when I'm not. And I, uh, begrudgingly uh, 
abided by those rules. And then to me, the Dexcom share changed our lives because what it was, was peace of mind mm-hmm. for, for me. Right. I could turn around and look on my phone and say, okay, she's not at a dangerous place. And it was a game changer for us for college as well. Yeah. The worry piece. And she's, is she reasonably close to you or no? Yeah, she's uh, two and a half hours away. Okay, that's how far my son is. My daughter's going about thirteen hours by car away, and Oof, that's I'm, a plane. I'm, no yes, car. yes, and I'm worried uh, a little bit, but not as much as I thought it was going to be. Uh, but you know, I've also been slowly handing her care off to her over years and years and years, and she really does. You know, over the last nine, ten months, she's basically been on her own with me just kind of looking over her shoulder. Um, because I said, look, let's just practice like you're not here. You know, let's do what, what we would do. I did just order something called Sugar Pixel, um, which I think I'm going to. That's I, the alarm thing, right? Yeah, it's going to be interesting because it has that puck on it that uh, will vibrate. And so we're going to try yeah. it here at the house and see how that works. Because I don't know about your girls. Mine's not going to wake up in the middle of the night for an alarm. So, Yeah, so Morgan sleeps like a brick. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that we did um when we when she first went to college, we insisted on meeting the roommate and getting the roommate's phone number. Yeah. And you talk about irony. Morgan got introduced to her roommate through a mutual friend. They met up. She lived a couple towns from us. They met up and she they decided they were gonna room together. Morgan then further on learns that this girl's mother is a pediatric endocrinologist. <laughs> So I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Like somebody's <laughs> looking out for me, right? Yeah, perfect. <laughs> so, yeah. So we were able to teach her about the Gugan kit, um, teach her about the highs and the lows. And, you know, in Knockwood in the three years that Morgan's been away at school, we've only had to call her once okay, um, to intervene for a significant low that Morgan was not waking up to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, if I didn't do that, next call was campus security, which I've heard horror stories from other parents where, you know, they broke down a door and the kid was just sleeping on the center and it was an artificial low. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You um, don't need that. You and do, it, but yeah. it makes you, it does make the point though, like, you know, a compression low, which I'm, by the way, a little hopeful that G7's form factor might take those away a little bit, but um, when it comes, but, yep. but, but you can see a compression low and you can trust it when you're up the hall. You go, ah, it's a compressional. I'll wait a couple minutes, but not two and a half hours away. That you're not trusting. Yeah. yeah. And not when you're seeing double arrows down mm-hmm. and the word low on the screen. <laughs> I mean, that's like, excuse me. No, you're fine. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. Uh, yeah, that that you're that you're not trusting. Uh, I no. can see that. I don't know how I'm going to actually feel when she goes. I know at the moment I'm very comfortable with her understanding of of her care and how we do things. Um, I might make her start listening to this podcast a little bit, but, uh, I'm sure she'll hate that about as much as your daughter didn't like you bothering her. I was wondering what the, what were the rules that you and and Morgan came up (laughs) with about contacting her? Yeah. So basically if I saw that she was high and stayed high for longer than four hours, I could contact her because we all know once you're high, it takes a little while to start coming down anyway. Mm -hmm. If she was low and I didn't see it at least plateauing or heading back the other way after a half hour, I could contact her. And if I saw anything like below 50, I okay. could contact her. All right. um, so those were kind of the rules of engagement. And usually I got, you know, the response of duh, or I got it or yeah. Okay. No kidding. But you know what? Yeah. I, I was cool with that because at least I knew 
that she was on it. Yeah. Isn't um, it funny how that makes you feel like even just anything, just, just say, yep. okay. Sign a wife. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. Give me the sign of wife. Let me know I'm you're good. on top of this a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. I did it this exactly. morning. Arden's at school and her blood sugar started raising. I was like, I'm like, Hey, what's up? She doesn't answer me. And I'm like, Hey, have you eaten something? No, no <laughs> answer. Arden. Hello. What? What? Like, what? Yeah. Yeah. Is she on a tandem or Omnipod or what? Arden uses uh Arden has an Omnipod and uh G6. She is current okay. she's currently looping with her Omnipod. Sure. Yeah. Yep. So um we actually are gonna try Omnipod five as soon as we can get our hands on it and um and see how we like that. But I mean she's been looping for a couple, three years now. And uh it's been really terrific actually. Yeah, loop is amazing. Um Morgan looped for five years and um she loved it. You know, the one, I don't know if you found this, the one thing that we, she hated carrying an extra Riley link and mm-hmm. charging an extra thing, right? It's annoying. And I understand with the new pod, you don't have to deal with that because it's Bluetooth and your talks right to your iPhone. Right. Um, but when, whenever we would stay in hotels, her, her Riley link must've gotten interfered with things, but it would always drop out. Hmm. I don't know if anybody else has, and I've been in the group and I talked to Pete Schwamm at, you know, on, yeah. online and trying to figure it out. He's like, I, I've, I've never heard that, but inevitably we'd stay in a hotel and that thing would drop out. We switched to the orange link a year ago and that's been more stable for, her. but she just mm-hmm. doesn't like having to carry an extra thing. So that that's the impetus for trying the Omnipod five or, you know, I guess we could always, I guess somebody's in the middle of developing a loop for, for the dash pods right now as well. So, you know, yeah. So we're funding, um, and have been funding tide pool to bring loop through the regulatory system and hopefully be like an FDA approved app that you can download an app store. Yeah. Um, you know, um, my hope is that that happens, you know, this year. Really? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Um, but it's, it's a earlier version of loop, right? The DIY community is significantly out ahead mm-hmm. of industry and, you know, where, where the, um, where tide pool loop is, but it's still way better than even, you know, my daughter's switched to tandem control IQ. Mm-hmm. Um, she was on Omnipod for a bunch of years too. And we were looping with Omnipod as well. And then she started developing a rash to the adhesive. Yeah, but okay. it, I mean, not just a rash, like blisters. Sure, I understand. Like it was really bad. Mm-hmm. And um, we tried all the barriers in between, and finally she's like, this is a pain in the neck. I'm done with she this. Swap like, to something else. Huh, that makes sense. Yeah. Do you, so we swapped the tandem. Do you think the? I know you're you're probably just funding it, but do you think the process of getting tide pool through FDA the first time would would open up the possibility of getting like a an updated version of the algorithm through quicker the second time? Yeah, so... Look, I, I'll give you my understanding of what the FDA is looking to accomplish here. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's a pretty interesting thing that they're trying to do, right? And and this is m- me talking, not Helms I Trust. But my, my, my point is the FDA has themselves an issue in that they know that there's a bunch of people out there, five to 10,000 people out there that are running around on hacked insulin pumps. They have absolutely no ability to regulate this. And quite frankly, it would be a public relations nightmare to try and shut this group down. Mm-hmm. And they and they wouldn't be able to do it. Um, so they have very much been supportive of the nonprofits, Helmsley, JDRF, and others bringing Tide Pool Loop through the FDA process. I think, and these are my words, not the FDA words, but I think 
what the FDA would like to see is have Thai pool be kind of the sandbox that the DIY community can play in and have those improvements filter up through Thai pool to legitimize them. Right. The fact is the DIY group will always be three or four steps ahead of anybody else because they don't have to meet the rigor of the FDA. However, uh, as you know, with the folks in the DIY community, every single one of them are people like us, except at least in my case, uh, I lack the expertise to do what they've done, but they clearly have it. Yeah. No, I mean, the the amount of time it took for someone to take Arden, the version of loop we were using, which was making adjustments with basil, and then suddenly it was making boluses to make adjustments. And I can't even tell you how well it works. It's, It's astonishing. I mean, she could almost... Arden could almost ignore what she's eating and not bolus for it. And I think that the auto bolus version that she's using now would at least keep her under 200, which is uh, that's impressive. Yeah. I think it's fascinating, especially with today's insulins because the insulins take so long to start working. Yeah. No, uh, Arden's been using a Pedra for a very long time. I find it to be a uh, very smooth acting like mm. kind of, kind of, uh, I don't know. There's not as many peaks and valleys as she had with other insulin in the, in the past. So interesting. I, I like it. And, and we know how to use it. So her settings, I mean, it's all set. The whole thing is settings, right? Like if your settings are right and you get your settings to match your Novolog or your Apedra or whatever your Humalog, whatever you're using, that's the whole thing. I mean, settings, pre-bolusing meals, understanding the impacts of different foods, you know, understanding that fat and protein needs insulin is pretty much, you know, yeah, but Scott, 99% of people don't understand half of what you just said. Yeah, they do if they listen to this podcast. Don't worry. Uh, oh. <laughs> we, we talk about it um, in a way that um, – so so to tell you a little bit about me, I guess, and, and if you maybe you don't care. but uh, No, I do care. I appreciate it. Um, I started writing that blog a very long time ago. It was completely just raw nerve. I didn't know what I was doing. I was trying to help. I was raising money for JDRF. Um and I was just trying to draw attention to what was going on. It all kind of started when I first had the idea, like, I can't help. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. Now my daughter has this thing I can't help with. Maybe I can draw attention, like put eyes on it. Um, I'm a good writer. Maybe that'll be the thing. And um, then one day I read this article uh, about this person who was on the Northeast Corridor line overnight, and they got thrown off a train for being drunk. And, uh, in the morning when, yeah, in the morning when people came in to go to work, one person recognized this guy as not being drunk, but being uh, low, uh, because they had a sibling who had type one and they stopped and saved the guy's life. And I thought maybe I'll write something on this blog that one day will reach out into the world and meet a person that will meet my daughter and help her. And was my first thought. Um, after a couple of years of writing, I started to realize that it wasn't enough to just spread awareness for me at least. And it wasn't enough um, for people just to understand it. Like I didn't, I, I realized there's a lot of comfort in community and I do think community is incredibly important, but I, I realized one day it's not enough just to know someone else is low at 2 AM. Like that's comforting and it's nice, but what if we could all figure out how not to be low at 2 AM? And I started thinking about why am I not good at managing my daughter's blood sugars? My daughter was two when she was diagnosed. So wow. I start I start writing this blog when she's three. 
you know, three, four, five, six years old, her A1C is in the eights. I don't know what I'm doing. I always feel like I'm killing her. You know, I'm a stay-at-home dad, so it's largely on my shoulders. And I just thought, I have to figure this out. So I went to my daughter's endocrinologist, to her nurse practitioner, actually, and I said, if I gave you a magic wand, what would you, one thing you could do for people with type 1 diabetes, what would you do? And she said, like, without hesitation, she said, I would make them not be afraid of their insulin. So I went about writing about not being afraid of insulin, which was just me talking myself into not being afraid. And then once I lost the fear, I started just looking at the things I had learned. I stepped back. Like, so instead of being in the fight constantly, I decided just to get kind of macro and step back and try to figure out, I thought I must have learned something in these years, you know? And before I knew it, I started putting these things into place. And our A1C, nine, eight, seven, I couldn't stop it from coming down. Like, you know, I'd lived for years without being able to move it. And then suddenly, by doing the things I knew to do all of a sudden uh, and not being afraid of the insulin, Arden's A1C just dropped right into the fives. And one wow. day, one day I said to my wife, I have a system. I was like, I don't call it anything. It doesn't have a name. I don't, it's not written down somewhere, but I know these things. And if you do these things, this is what happens. So I switched my blog over to writing about how to manage yourself. And it was a big leap because, you know, you're, I mean, you tell people you're not given medical advice, you right. put disclaimers all over everything, and I'm just sharing my opinion, whatever you got to say. Uh, but it's still scary, you know, to put it out into the world. But I thought it was what the, I believed it, it's what the space was missing. So what I was noticing is that I knew people who had great A1Cs and stable blood sugars, but even if they were in the space, they never talked about how they got them. They'd always keep it light and community, and I'm here for you and support, which again I think is great. But again, not enough. So I just went, I just went all in on it, and I would start getting one, two, three letters a month. Hey, this blog, this blog's really helping me. My A1C is coming down. I have more stability. And then in uh, 2013, someone approached me to write a book. It wasn't about diabetes. I wrote my book, and I was doing the the media on it. And I was I was getting off stage at the Katie Couric show, and Katie Couric. I've met Katie. <laughs> she grabs me in the wings and she says, "You're very good at talking to people," and I said, "Thank you." And about a year later, I realized nobody was reading blogs anymore, and I thought, "Well, Katie Couric says I'm good at talking to people," so I made a podcast about it. And now that thing that used to get me a note or two a day. I probably get a dozen of them a day now. That's awesome. From all over the world. So, you know, it's kind of nuts in that, you know, I always say, and people, right, if you don't have type one or you're not involved with type one, people don't really understand type one. And there's no way to really explain it well. And I, I, I tell people, I said, listen, you're here, here's the best way I can explain it to you is you take a drug insulin, you're dosing that drug many times a day. That drug can kill you. And you make all of these decisions 99.9% .9 of the time without the benefit of a clinician. And if you get it right, 60% of the time, you're doing amazing. Mm. And you know, it's, it's so hard to understand the burden of this disease. And I think part, part of it is what you said, which is the education and knowing what to do. But part of it also is, is having a support system. Yeah. And I think, you know, very rarely in this country, at least, we don't treat the whole person. We just treat symptoms mm -hmm. and the mental health thing. I guess if there's a silver lining around COVID it's highlighted two things that we've been interested in for a really long time. And that's 
telemedicine and mental health. Mm -hmm. And COVID has kind of highlighted both of them. But when you look at diabetes and type one specifically, the burden is never ending. It's 24 seven, as you know, and people just don't, it's very hard to wrap your head around that unless you live in it. Yeah. So, so what I, what I think I've done with the podcast, because the podcast started off, I just thought I was going to like, I was so bad in the beginning. I, I tried to read a blog post like into the microphone. I got like 20 minutes into it. I was like, this is stupid. And I stopped. <laughs> and, um, but what, what it's kind of become is it's my knowledge dispensed out over conversation. Because I realized, like, I'm not going to, if you wrote everything down in bullet points, nobody could remember, right? It's out of context. You don't have any background. Your perspective's all skewed. Also, you believe all the things you've been seeing for years, which are likely, I always talk about, like, people are just chasing ghosts. They don't really know what's happening with their blood sugar. They they see things they believe, usually they're aberrations. So what I ended up doing was I said, though, here's what I'm going to do. First of all, I'm never going to interview anybody who's already in this space, because they're practiced and they are stilted and they have a talk and they give their talk. And I've, I've generally st stuck to that. I put people on who just have diabetes and I talk to them and we just yep. have conversations. They go where they go. And when I hear something that I can respond to in a way that will help that person and I believe help the people listening, that's when the conversations dig down a little bit. About 200 episodes into it, I firmly believed if you just listen to the 200 episodes, episodes of the podcast, your A1C would come into the sixes. And I, I was right because people do it. But I started thinking, all right, this is crazy. Like, I can't ask people to listen to 200 episodes of a podcast to have some like health success. So I reached back to uh, a CDE who has type 1 diabetes, who I'd had on the podcast a couple of times, and I always jived really well with her. And I said, I'm going to take these 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 moments, these these ideas that I know are singular that are spread throughout the podcast, and will you help me drill down and put them in specific episodes? So we made this thing called Diabetes Pro Tip, and since then we've added defining diabetes because I found that you'd be shocked at the terms that people don't understand, uh, and and moreover, even if they've heard them, they don't have like everyday knowledge of them. Um, and we did that. We did, uh, gosh, variables, um, how people eat. I do a whole after dark series where people talk about the things that nobody talks about, you know, having type one and being a heroin addict or a sex worker or, you know, uh, by having bipolar, like things that people really live with that nobody talks about. And, you know, so they get sprinkled in, but mostly the show goes up four times a week and three times a week. It's just a conversation with somebody. And then on the fourth day, there's something that's a little more drilled down. Uh, with Jenny awesome. the CD and it just, David, it just works. It, it's you, you can jump in anywhere. I've, I've heard from people who are high school dropouts to people who are physicians themselves who can't manage their own or their kids diabetes. Doesn't mean it doesn't matter if you're a parent or an adult living with type one, this podcast will help you. And it's the, it's the only thing I've seen so far that the only, I mean, the, where it falls short is that I don't know how to, I can't afford to translate it into other languages. Like that's really where it falls short. Um, and I get contacted by Spanish speaking people particularly. And I, I just tell them, I'm like, I, I don't know what to do. I'm sorry. Um, but I do think, I do think there's value there as well. Anyway, I, uh, there's a, a young girl right now who is a, um, a grad student who is going to do, um, She's she's building a survey to look into how the podcast helps people. Uh, as, as that's awesome. Yeah, it, it, I'm just incredibly proud of the whole thing. So, um, I do think my point is is that you can 
you can help people. Um, I, I alluded to it earlier about about lowest common denominator, like. But the way I see it is that the way we talk about it is if there's 20 kids in a class, you don't teach to the top five, you don't teach to the middle, you teach to the bottom because everybody can understand that. But I just don't believe in that. I think you say what needs to be said and then find a way to say it to all of those people. Um, before I started recording this show, and I just had the blog, people would put me in contact with people, and I would kind of walk them through how to. I basically, David, I have about a 45-minute talk in my head. I could get <laughs> you on the phone and and level your blood sugar out. So I was doing it this one day with this girl. She was very young. She was a dropout. She had a baby. The baby had type 1. I gave her my best explanation about how to bolus for meals. And she said, I'm sorry, I don't understand what you're saying. And I was in this moment where I thought, I either have to hang up on her and tell her I'm sorry, I can't help you, or I have to find another way to say this. And so I just took a deep breath and I started over again and I came up with this kind of uh, allegory for uh, tug of war and how bolusing a meal is like tug of war. And uh, I, I gave it to her over the phone and now it's in the podcast and there are people who uh, I respect very greatly who think that that's the best way they've ever heard a meal bolus described. And it, it only came out of panic because I, I couldn't hang up on this woman. Her kid was three, four years old. She was... She worked in a diner. She's trying to help this baby. She doesn't know what to do. And I just, I couldn't bring myself to just tell her I'm sorry. So I just tried again. And I, it, it led me to believe that everyone can understand this stuff. So I, I see my job as distilling these ideas that I had back on that blog down so far that anyone can pick it up from anywhere and start running with it. So, so Scott, I couldn't agree more with you. And, and I certainly believe that our healthcare system does cater to the lowest common denominator. Um, but I also think that we sell everybody short. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're actually funding research in sub-Saharan Africa in type one diabetes, where number one, we're educating people around type one. And some of the things that we're finding very small studies, but some of the things we're finding is just T1D specific education lowers mm. A1C two points. Sure. I imagine. Right. Just, just education. We're now running, as far as we know, it's the first study ever in Tanzania um, with CGM mm -hmm. um, with these people. And everybody was like, oh, you know, they're never going to be able to do it. They're not going to understand it. They're, they don't understand numeracy. And I'm like, this isn't that hard. Like we can teach them and support them and hopefully empower them. But if we don't try, how are we ever going to know? You're just selling them out before you ever try. Yeah. Trials happening right now, TBD, whether it works. I'm willing to bet you a lot of money that was going to work. I don't even think the math is important. I'm going to say, like, for me, if you listen to the podcast, you're here. Part of the podcast exists because I just, I'm not good at math. And the stuff they told me in the hospital, I was like, what am I, I can't do this. So, I mean, especially with CGM, right? It's just really, it's just timing an amount. It's putting the right okay. amount of insulin at the right time. It's, it's impacting one bell curve with another bell curve. You just, you know, I, I've talked about it a million different ways. It's, making sure you have enough people blocking so they can't get to your to your quarterback. Like, it's all just, you know, I've talked about it, like being a mime pushing on a wall. You just need the, you need equal amounts of force coming from both sides to hold each other up so nothing collapses. And when you start talking about it, like uh, insulin to carb ratio and insulin sensitivity factors and everything, people's, my, my mind shut off. The first time somebody said glycemic load and index to me, I thought... <laughs> 
I don't care about that. I'm never going to pay attention to that. And yet, if you if you cornered me right now and said, Scott, five minutes left in your life, here's a person with type one diabetes, help one more person. I'd say uh, it's timing an amount. You have to pre-bolus your meals. You have to understand the glycemic load and glycemic index of your foods. But I wouldn't say it like that. I would ha- I would say that different foods have different impacts on your blood sugars. And despite their carb counts, for instance, 10 carbs of this may require a unit, while 10 carbs of that may require two units. I would never say to somebody, you have to understand the glycemic load and index of your foods because it's it, it's yeah, your eyes glaze over. It's off-putting. <laughs> It just is. And so when, so when you, people are in this situation to begin with, and you described eloquently earlier, I say it felt to me like somebody hit me in the face with a shovel and then started yelling algebra at me. You, you know, my, <laughs> my kid, my kids, uh, you know, my kids got a disease. She weighs 17 pounds. She's two years old. My life had been pretty perfect up until about five minutes before that. Um, no one had ever been sick. And now people are telling me about all this stuff and using all these technical terms. And now in hindsight, I look back and realize they didn't even know what they were talking about. They were just regurgitating something back to me. So, you know, you know, like that's not where you meet people. And uh, I'm a huge believer in that. You have to find people where they are and give them the information that they need. And I realize now in hindsight, I treated that girl on the phone differently because she was a dropout and because she was a young mom. But that's not even fair or accurate. It's just who she is, right? And she needed to hear yep. it a different way. And and I needed to hear it a different way. And so does everyone else. And it turns out that there's a distilled way to say these things to people that everyone can understand. So I Yeah, and I think you've hit the nail right on the head as far as you really got to meet people where they are and speak their language, whatever that may be. Yeah. Um, and I think that we do a really good job of listening to the very vocal minority without ever asking the majority of people, what do you really need? Sure. And you know, it's one of the things that we've been really pushing hard on right. is to really understand what, what do you, what do you really need as opposed to what do I think you need? Oh yeah. No, I, I, I genuinely think that most of the effort being put into diabetes and maybe other things as well is misguided from some some knee jerk reaction that someone had at some point. You know, don't don't tell people about your successes. It'll make them feel bad. No. What if it made them feel aspirational instead? What right. if you what if you didn't rub it in? Instead you said, hey, look at me. Here's how I used to say it on the podcast. I'm an idiot. If I can do this, you can do this. Right. And that to me is it's aspirational. And I've had people there's a woman that was on the other day. She's got type two. Her kid has type one. They both use the podcast and they're both having great success. Type two diabetes. Oh, look at every single marketing campaign in the world is based on people wanting to mimic what they're seeing on the screen. Right. Yeah. It just. So it, why is it any different? I, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, don't. No, you're not interrupting at all. It's even. You have to get past the stuff that everybody gets stuck on. Like you, it's easy to see. People like to argue about what they eat, for example. Like everybody gets very tribal. I eat this way. You eat that way. They want, everybody wants to fight. And before you know it, you think everyone fights about this. Well, everyone doesn't fight about this. The people online that you see are fighting That's about right. this. They're a very small percentage. Most people are not at home concerned as to whether or not you're vegan or you eat only protein or whatever the hell else. Nobody. This is the vocal minority yes, I was talking yes, about. Yes, yes. No one cares, generally speaking, but we get, we get, you know, kind of, we can get tricked into it. And I'll tell you that I'm very proud of the moment when somebody came to me early on in the podcast and said, you can't talk like this to people. 
I said, not only am I going to talk like this to people, I think it's imperative. And if I'm not going to do it, then why am I wasting my time shoveling this regurgitated content into these people's mouths that you guys have been shoveling for 10 years in this space? I mean, how many times can I read an article about the best recipe for 4th of July for your blood sugar? Like, it's enough (laughs) already, right? Like, let's actually teach people how to use their insulin. It's the whole game. It just just made sense to me. So anyway... I, I, I got all upset there. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I, I totally get it. And I understand, yeah. you know, it's, we have to, you know, the status quo is not good enough and let's just face it. We have failed miserably as a healthcare system in this country. Right. So why not try something different? Yeah, no, I agree. I'll tell you that right now, when people come into my Facebook group, which has maybe 25,000 people at this point, all helping each other with insulin type twos, type ones, really, it's a great space. I have a little intake form. And more and more and more, how did you find out about the podcast? My doctor told me. Wow. So that's impressive. It is really, it's really getting there. Uh, and I'm, I'm very so, happy know, about it. One of our, one of our new projects that I, I just want to plug for a second, you know, so we started, it started way back in, in 2018. I started thinking about it with my team and I'm like, we really need the geek squad for type one diabetes, right? Mm-hmm. Best buys geek squad. Everybody understands this. And I actually reached out to the founder of Best Buy. His name is Dick Schultz. I think he's like 82 years old. I had to write him like a four bullet email so that he could decide whether he would take my call. Mm-hmm. So bullet number one was, I don't want your money. You know, and I <laughs> came up with three other bullets about what I wanted to talk to him about. And um, he was sharp as a tack. He's like, David, you know, you don't really need the Geek Squad because what's out there and what's coming, you can do almost all of this virtually. So then when you look at the lower socioeconomically challenged or the social determinants of health that really screw people in rural areas, um, we, we decided that we're going to go and try and pilot a what we're now calling what's a brand new organization. We acquired a company at the end of December. We spun them out into a new nonprofit called Blue Circle Health. And Blue Circle Health is going to be, in a nutshell, um, it's going to be kind of like the St. Jude's for type 1 diabetes, but for the lower socioeconomically challenged. So what if we can create a system that doesn't have to cater to the fee-for-service model mm-hmm. and doesn't care about where you come from, but we're actually going to put patients front and center. We're going to do the right thing by patients. And that's what Blue Circle Health is going to try and do. We're going to pilot it in one location. And we've done a lot of diligence. You talk about meeting people where they are and understanding what they want. I've learned that the hard way by having preconceived notions that were dead wrong. Mm -hmm. But we've spent a decent amount of time now in federally qualified health centers, in areas where people with lower socioeconomic status live with type 1 diabetes. And we talked to them. And we had consultants talk to them. What do you need? How can we help you? And after speaking with a whole bunch of them, the irony is one of the biggest things that came up almost 92% of the time was we need help navigating our insurance, i.e. I can't get my supplies, right? We have a system, a healthcare system today that doesn't actually enable care. It puts barriers in front of people. Mm -hmm. And And I believe, you know, systems like things like prior authorizations or reviews or third-party reviews or denials, they're totally put in place so that half the people go away and don't even try. Right. When you have a group of people who don't have the wherewithal to challenge the system and they're set, 
92% of them are saying we need, we have insurance, but I still can't get my stuff. Right. Right. And, and you're fighting about a drug that you need to stay alive with insulin. That's just, that's a pretty huge indictment on our healthcare system. And we're going to try and go out there and be an example for at the very least, remove all that stuff. We're going to remove all the barriers to care. So if we, if you can't get your supplies, we'll deal with your insurance company where we call it, we're calling it the insurance concierge. I don't know what we'll end up calling it, but in a nutshell, it's get me my shit when I need it without all the yeah. hassle. Um, and, you know, we're going to go and really deliver care. Right. If you're poor and you don't have a phone, we'll give you a phone. Mm-hmm. We'll pay for the service, but you have to lean in a little bit and allow, you know, allow us to help you. So one of the major pieces of this is obviously going to be CGM and teaching people and having peer coaches that come from their area, speak their language, live with type one diabetes. And the pro we have a project going on right now that's piloting this in a research study. Mm-hmm. And as you might imagine, it's unbelievably successful yeah. because people are being engaged in their own backyard mm-hmm. with a trusted peer. And, you know, you, you alluded to it, I think a little earlier, there is so much clinician bias that we hear all the time. That example you just gave of your own bias, just speaking to that woman, right? right? We all have it. Providers have it, but it's really selling people short. And we're going to try and attempt to change that paradigm. You're going to save people's lives. I, um, I'm, I'm often reminded of a, a mother of a, she had a lot of kids, I think seven, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, someone on Facebook put her in touch with me one time. She had diabetes since she was 16. She was in her mid 30s. She was starting to have problems from, from her type one. And uh, mm-hmm. she was online looking for help. And we got on the phone together and I, I gave her the talk. I gave her my 45 minute spiel. I told her what to do. She had a CGM. She was using it all wrong. Um, day or so later, she sends me a note. She says, can I call you back? She calls me back. She's crying. And I thought, gosh, what happened? You know what I mean? Like, why is she so upset? Turns out she wasn't upset at me. She was upset at everyone else. And then she showed me her graph, her nice stable graph overnight where her blood sugar was 90 all night or whatever it was. And she said, how could I have lived this many years and no one told me this? And, mm-hmm. and I said, I, I'm sorry, I don't know. I said, you know, I, all I could tell her was like, just move forward from here, you know, but she had so much like seething anger inside of her because she had lived so unhealthy for so long and people told her that this was the best she could expect. And it's not the best she could expect. And people in Ecuador don't have to use the sliding scale or whatever other crap stuff people tell each other because they don't have the answers for you or they don't know how to talk to you or they don't have the time or whatever the reason is that they won't spend 45 minutes with you to fix your your health issue. Um, that's amazing that you're going to do that. I, that's really wonderful. That's, you know, I'd actually love to hear your 45-minute talk. Obviously not now, but... Um, I'd be happy to give it to you sometime. I, um, I'm i more proud of is, that talk than anything I, maybe I've ever said out loud. So Is it out there on a recording that mm-hmm. I can find? No, I just I give it to like small groups. Um, I don't make it public usually because it's, at least when it's live... I can answer people's questions. And if there's confusion, you know, if I, if I had a little bit of, if I had a little bit of indemnity between me and my, you know, this is just me. Yeah. I I get it. Yeah. So it's a, it's a tough situation, but I'll tell you what, I'll get into a plane or a car. I'll go anywhere and give it to anybody. Um, You can quickly 
change your understanding of how to use your insulin and and very, very quickly stop the highs, stop the lows, stop the over-treating of lows that create more highs. You just have to understand how insulin works. And it's just, it's not difficult. It's, it's I find it kind of easy to explain. So, you know, you let me so know. Scott, yeah, I got I have a question for you. And that is, um, so one of my daughters and her friend are going to be interning um, and, and doing a little bit of diligence for me at the trust um, around, and I've got them, uh, I think it starts next month, actually in May. Um, but what I would love to do, if you're up for this, and obviously we can take this offline, um, is I, I'm trying to create kind of this understanding what people need and how to help them. So we've got a lot of these interviews that I was talking about through the consultant, we have them recorded. So I'm going to have my daughter and her friend go through all of these recordings. There's a bunch of them and see if they can distill out some common themes as to what's needed. Mm -hmm. We know there are, but I want, I want these kids to do it. I wondering if you'd be up for it to have that 45 minute talk with the two of them, because I'd love for them to distill. And I would, I would join you because I want to hear it. That'd be amazing. Um, um, Because I would love to hear their version of what they distill out of your 45 minute talk. Okay. No, I would, I would be honored to, to, to do that. I, I really would. Okay. Yeah, I, I would appreciate um, it very much. So I, I will definitely set that up. I, I, I got to figure out the exact dates, but it would be amazing to hear mm-hmm. my own daughter will be one of them. So it'll be amazing to hear her point of view and her friend's point of view, who she's known since kindergarten. Right. Oh, no. I, um, well, please, you let me know. I'm, I'm in. I would, anything okay. that helps is, is, is great, actually. Um, I will follow up with you on that front for sure. Excellent. So can you, um, before I let you go, can you give people a couple of examples of things that you've uh, funded or gotten behind and, and the changes you're seeing them make in different areas? Uh, sure. So one that I'm quite proud of um, is that I don't know, back in 2010, Helmsley, we went to JDRF and at the time, Jeffrey Brewer was the CEO, Aaron Kowalski was working there. And I said, guys, you're building a system, you know, they called it the artificial pancreas. I, I hate that name. Mm-hmm. I call it automated insulin delivery system, but you're building a system that has a gigantic hole in it and you're going to hurt people. And that hole was the sensor um, because at the time the sensor sucked. I, I'm sure you remember um, the, the seven, the seven plus, and sure. you know, we had them all they were terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were terrible. Um, and, so I said, we're going to put up $12.5 million. I'd like you guys to put up $12.5 million, and we're going to fund industry to go accelerate improved centers. Mm-hmm. And at the time, JDRF was like, oh, I'm not so sure we need to do that. They reconsidered, and they joined us. So we funded Medtronic, um, and we funded Becton Dickinson. Becton Dickinson sensors scientifically failed. Medtronic sensors actually still on its way to market. It's it's the one that was just approved mm-hmm. overseas. Um, it, I don't know what they call it now on the market. It was codenamed Zeus back then. I don't know what its name is now. And Helmsley back then went on to fund Dexcom G6 by ourselves. Okay. Um, so G6, what we did at the time, if you remember, G6 um, was meant to accelerate the acetaminophen uh, interference. So Tylenol interference with the sensor was a big deal mm-hmm. in G5. Um, G6 membrane eliminated that. So we funded G6 and um, you could talk to Kevin Sayer over at Dexcom and he'll tell you that that probably accelerated their timelines by a couple of years wow. of getting that to 
to people. And the funding, you can argue, why would we fund industry and why would we do that? And the truth is, if we didn't, the cadence would have been really slow. Mm. But once you had funded like a Medtronic and then we funded Dexcom, it forced everybody in the field to accelerate and do what they were doing quicker. Right. Um, so we did that. Um, and then I'd say we've, we've got a whole bunch of things, but I'd say one of the things that I'm most proud of is very early on when Dana Ball was working with us, we were running around asking, where is the data to show how people with type one are really doing in this country? And it turned out it really didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And we had, and back then, I'm sure you came across this when Arden was first diagnosed back then it was the common thought was, Oh, you just take your insulin. You're all set. And that was from payers to the FDA. Everybody thought that. Well, we created the T1D exchange registry, which at now I don't know how many thousands of people it has now because we spun it out into its own 501c3. But I remember going to the FDA when we had data on 3,000 people. Mm-hmm. And the data, and these are the best clinics in the country that were in this, right? right. The average A1C in the best clinics in this country was 8.5. I know. Yeah. And, the, and the percentage of people who had had a severe hypoglycemic event or a severe event needing third-party assistance mm-hmm. was 10% within the last 12 months needed third-party assistance. Right. I could tell you that we went to the FDA, and I was very fortunate enough to get introduced to Margaret Hamburg, who was the commissioner of FDA back then, and Jeff Shuren, who is still running CDRH. Um, they got in a room, and I, I remember there's like 20 or 30 people from FDA, and we were presenting data, I think we had it on 3,000 people, showing them that type 1 was neither safe nor managed. And I'd like to think that that changed the paradigm of thinking for both payers and the FDA to say, hey, you know what? this We, can, we have to do so much better because right. this is just not good enough. Yeah. And even today, there's still only roughly 35% of people meeting their ADA recommended targets for type one. And it's very hard to get people to take those surveys, which, so by the way, I'm very proud to tell you that I personally uh, have put more people on the T1D exchange registry than all of their other influencers combined. So thank you. I, and thank the people who listen to this podcast because they're very good about it. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, It's but it's hard. It's difficult to get somebody takes less than 10 minutes and you feel like you're, I, I, you say, look, the information is really going to help people. This is a great example yep. of how it helps people. So, no, I, I yeah, I think that. a lot of times people don't understand. Um, they think, you know, people are going to try and monetize their data because so many people are trying to do I that. Know, I know. You know, I think the fact that we were a nonprofit, and if anybody did a little bit of diligence, they'd understand what our motives are, and mm-hmm. it's pure. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, we want to improve outcomes. Period. Right. No, I, I hear that. Okay. Well, that's amazing. Uh, I have something I'd like to ask you when we're not recording, if you if you have a minute afterwards, but do you have anything sure. else that you wanted to uh, to say, or do you think we did a good job? Well, I, I think so, but you're the, I'm like the episode number 5,000, so you tell me. <laughs> Trust me. If I'm asking you if it was all right, we're done and it's good. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> uh, I really appreciate you doing this. I, I hope maybe you'll do this again with me sometime. Yeah, of course. Excellent. I'm happy to do First, I'd like to thank David for taking time out of his schedule to come on the show. I hope he comes back. This was a, a really great conversation. I enjoyed it. I'd also like to thank US Med and remind you to go to usmed.com forward slash juice box or call 888-721-1514 to get your free benefits check. Get your supplies easily from US Med.
Thanks also to the Contour Next One blood glucose meter. Go to contournext.com forward slash juice box to learn more about my favorite blood glucose meter. The darn little thing is accurate. One last time, if you're a U.S. resident who has type 1 diabetes or you're a U.S. resident who is the caregiver of someone with type 1, please go to t1dexchange.org forward slash juice box and take the survey. You heard David speak about it earlier. It's an incredibly easy thing to do. This is very beneficial for people living with type 1. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back very soon with another episode of the Juice Box Podcast. Are you on Facebook? Check out the private Facebook group for the Juice Box Podcast. It's called, and you're going to think, wow, Scott, where did you get this name from? Juice Box Podcast Type 1 Diabetes. But you don't have to have type 1 to be in there. You could just use insulin of any kind, really. Diabetes is, you know, it's diabetes. So head over there. There's plenty of people just like you having great conversations right now about so much. I can't even list it. It's just a great space. You could also find me on Instagram, but you know, the TikTok, wherever juice be, just look for me. If you if you got the apps, you look for the juice box podcast. If I'm there, you throw a little follow. And speaking of following, if you're listening in a podcast app, but you're not subscribed to the show or following the show, depends on which app you're in. Some say subscribe, some say follow. Please do that. It's a huge, huge benefit for the show. And you'll get new episodes lickety split. Like magic, they'll just pop up on your phone and they're there if you want them. Subscribe and follow. Follow and subscribe.